the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. We can help your company and your employees look forward to tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This is my first podcast of 2019, so Happy New Year to you all. This week I'll be talking about Apple's recent business woes and its surprise TV partnership with Samsung, announced just a couple of days ago. And later in the show, IBEC Chief Executive Danny McCoy will be giving us his predictions for the Irish economy this year amid the threat of Brexit, Donald Trump's tariffs and other drags on our economic performance. Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times joined us for that conversation. Now, last week, Apple issued its first profit warning for more than a decade, blaming weak sales in China for its difficulties. It also reduced its sales outlook for the first time in almost two decades. Since becoming the first company globally to achieve a $1 trillion market valuation last August, Apple has since shed just under $300 billion in its value. On Monday, Apple took us by surprise by announcing that it would bring its existing iTunes movie and TV app to Samsung's latest TV sets. The pair have been bitter rivals in the handsets market. And to round out the past week, Samsung's quarterly profit and revenue missed estimates on sputtering demand for memory chips, its biggest source of profit. Now, joining me in studio to discuss developments at both Apple and Samsung is Aidan Donnelly, a fund manager and analyst with Davy. Uh, Aidan, you're very welcome. Uh, what's behind this Apple profit warning? Well, I, I think there's a few things to, to bear in mind. A lot of focus is obviously centred on the fact that uh, Chinese demand has been very weak for the smartphones. But I think it kind of hides a few other things going on behind it. You know, when you look at the most recent announcement, it's actually the second reduction in profit guidance for this quarter. They did it back in uh, early November. They took down uh, guidance based on the fact that they were seeing weaker demand generally across the board. But this this profit warning in, in, in particular was much more focused on China. But I think the, the, the general story behind it ultimately is the fact that they're facing a problem with the iPhone in that the um, the Many of developed markets are not seeing the demand for uh, iPhones in terms of replacement um, and uh, so your, your weaker upgrade, basically a weaker upgrade cycle. But also um, we've seen a phenomenon where a lot of uh, people are choosing to replace the battery in their iPhone rather than get a new one because that's usually what, you know, the battery started stopped working and you just jacked it in and bought a new one. Well, a lot of the, re- the price of replacement batteries have come down significantly and their availability is much better. So people are actually deciding, well, if there's nothing wrong with the phone, I'll just get a new battery. So the whole replacement cycle for uh, the iPhone has slowed quite a bit in in developed markets. Added to that, then, we obviously have the issue with uh, the Chinese market in the last last quarter. And really, it it comes down to there's huge competition from a lot of the Chinese manufacturers within China. And obviously, given the nature of of the Chinese market, they prefer to buy one of their own branded uh, phones. So if you look at it, the iPhone has a market share now. Apple has a market share probably of about 7 or 8% in China, down from about 15%, say, you know, a year or two ago. And I think what's happening is a lot of the Chinese consumers are looking at the iPhone in particular and, and the price of the new, the 10s, and, and look and say, look, $1,000 or dollars $1, $1,200 is it worth me getting that or will I get one of the domestic Chinese manufacturer's phones? What do I need it for? And the biggest app that is, is, is running within China is this thing called WeChat. So it's a bit like WhatsApp, but it's, it's a Chinese version uh, created by Tencent. And you don't need a $1,000 
phone to run that. So a lot of people are saying, well, I only need it for WeChat, so why, I don't need everything else that comes with a $1,000 phone. So that's really why we've seen the, um, the demand for particularly these more expensive, higher-end phones uh, from Apple, the likes of the 9s and the 10s, just the, the demand not be there, and yeah. as a result, the, the market share falling. There was actually a very good piece in the New York Times this week, I don't know if you read it or not, it was by somebody in Beijing, I'm not sure it was somebody who works for the New York Times, but somebody in Beijing who said that they were effectively gifted somebody's uh, second-hand iPhone when they were a college student, let's say 10 years ago, and it was a great a great thing. There was a certain cachet to iPhone and this person was a student, so they were broke, so to get a second-hand iPhone uh, was great. Um, but things have really moved on in the past decade because, as you say, these Chinese manufacturers are producing top-quality phones now at much cheaper prices, like three or $400 cheaper than the iPhone and I had a look at the prices in Ireland if you want the iPhone XS which I think is the uh, top of the range or near the top of the range it's 1179 and the iPhone XS Max is 1279 I mean that's out of the reach of most people Yeah it is and, and that's why when you look at the Chinese market in particular Huawei is, is obviously the largest manufacturer and the largest has the largest market share and it's about 23% but you do have probably at this stage you're looking at I think Apple is fifth uh, in fifth place Ironically, and we will talk about Samsung in, in, in a few minutes, they've less than a, a, a 1% market share in China um, because they've never actually, they'd never had the same cachet that, as you said, years ago would have, the, the Apple um, uh, brand would have had. So we're, we're, it's just a, a different dynamic, I think, within that market. And that's what we're, we're definitely seeing the, for the, from the Chinese perspective, the demand not be there. But I think, you know, in terms of the, the longer term uh, issues with, uh, with Apple, Definitely, the the develop the slowdown in replacement cycle is a much bigger issue for them. And like, if you look at it right now, you're probably looking at Apple makes probably sixty sixty five percent of its revenue in the iPhone alone. So that's why it becomes absolutely crucial, and people watch it so much in terms of the amount of units that are going to be sold. When is the next one going to come out? Is there is there significant features on this new model that makes the you know the replacement cycle uh, pick up in any way? And, the reality is, when when you, when you think about it, and, and, and you know, listeners can think about it themselves. If you have an iPhone six right now and it breaks, are you going to jump right the way through to a ten and, and and buy it? No, you're not. You'll probably go to the to car phone warehouse. And one of the things is, say, listen, what can I get for a reasonable price? And it probably is the seven or the eight. And you go, look, that's going to do me so long as I have everything that I need on it. You know, the camera is good. It does all my WhatsApp. It has all my apps on it. it has everything. I need. Um, it might have a little bit more storage on it than I had in my old phone, so that's an even better thing. So I don't need to go to the 10, and that's really where we're having. Whereas, you know, five years ago, it was all about you had to be the first adopter. You wanted to be the one that was walking around with the new, the newest of the new iPhones, and, and, and it had a certain SATA symbol. Now it just it isn't there, and and you know people are looking at it and going, going, look, I need it to be functional. If it does everything I need and it's not broken, I'm not going to, as you said, pay eleven hundred euros just to have yeah, something in my pocket. Donald Trump probably isn't helping either because he's he's uh, imposing tariffs on certain goods out of China, or threatening to impose tariffs at least. And Apple does a lot of its manufacturing in China, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, all of its manufacturing is actually done by a Chinese company called Foxconn. So they would be definitely in the crosshairs if, you know, we, we, we've obviously seen a, a, a delay in the next leg of, of tariffs being uh, implemented. And But if that, that doesn't, uh, if a, a deal doesn't come through and those tariffs are um, hit, 
the next ones will really put the likes of the iPhones and everything squarely in, in, mm. in the crosshairs. What size of tariff is he proposing? He, he Initially, we've, what we've seen in the, the last two series of, of tariffs, it started at 10% and then went up to 25 So, you know, presumably, if they were going to do the last phase, which is basically everything that hasn't been done so far, uh, that would be that was where the iPhone would fall in. So you'd be probably looking initially at a 10% uh, tariff. So that would be the, the price would be for, for US-landed phones rather than Europe, because obviously tariff's not coming out of... Um, and he has been banging the drum over the last uh, couple of years about Apple bringing manufacturing jobs back to America yeah. but the company has stayed silent No, no but you see the problem for, from the Apple's perspective is they don't do any manufacturing anywhere themselves it's all outsourced right the way across from components right the way through to final production so they really are just a design house ultimately and then they put it in, you know not quite put it out to tender but they literally have contract manufacturers that come in and make it all for them so they've ne- they, they, it's not as if they have overseas plants that they could bring back to the US if that wanted to be the case they just don't have it, so you know it becomes a, a non-event for them. Okay, what's going on at Samsung? Well, Sa- Samsung was a t- slightly different story in that uh, they obviously had numbers there o- overnight on uh, Monday, uh, late Monday night, and. Um, I think the the thing a lot of people forget when they see Samsung, they think of kind of two things mainly. They think of the TVs and they think of the phones and they think that's exactly, that's all that, that Samsung do. The reality is actually the phone business is probably about 30 odd percent of their, their, their profit, but actually semiconductor chips and, and um uh, display screens, LCD screens are actually a much bigger component combined together and the, the profit warning we got the other day was really down to, particularly on the semiconductor um, memory side of it, it tends to be very cyclical and very volatile and it's, it can be highly profitable and then huge loss making from quarter to quarter. So it has a disproportionate effect on the overall numbers but even if you look at the mobile phone component, the, the handset component within, within um, Samsung, what you actually saw was revenues down about 10% in the, in the final quarter of last year. Um, two of that was due to actually a, a, a reduction of, of 2% in volume and then selling prices falling by 8%. And that's, you know, it's, it's the same for every manufacturer, that, that average selling price all the time falling and falling because, you know, you, you, you roll out new products in order to try to keep your selling rise up, but all the time you're having to mark down everything else to try to, to, to shift it out. So we saw revenues um, fall about 10% within the, 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 uh, the mobile phone unit. So, I think there will be some focus on that, but I think more importantly from, from people who, are lo- who would look very regularly at Samsung, it's much more about what's going on in the semiconductor business rather than what's going on in the mobile. So, you know, it's just co- more coincidental that the mm. Apple and the Samsung happen to come out at the same time. Sure. Now, they took us all by surprise this mm. week with this uh, announcement of a partnership on the TV side. Yeah, and uh, look, I, I, I think it, it, it's very interesting. Uh, you're starting to see this across an awful lot of consumer electronics, um, be it on the, on the software, software side, the services side, or whatever it is. Um, and I, I think ultimately people are saying, look, we, we can't be kind of uh, very dogmatic about what we do. It, you know, it's about getting as much of our product out there as possible. And if we have to partner with people that would be perceived to be competitors of ours in one area, but we're you know we're we're we're, we're so partnering with them in in TVs, but we're we're, we're you know we're, we're head head to head in terms of, of mobiles. So be it. It's about trying to expand the um, expand the, the user base that you've got, and ultimately um, you know as the 
hardware side of, of Apple slows down, services, software and, and things like iTunes becomes far more important. And that's where the Apple TV and all of that type of resides. So if they want to kind of change the mix and become far more, that part of the business become more important. They've got to do deals like this. And, and, you know, don't be surprised. We've seen things like, you know, even closer to home, you've seen the likes of Sky now has Netflix. If you you get your subscription, T-Mobile in the US, the mobile phone operator also gives you a free Netflix now because you'll be watching it on your phone. So, you know, you kind of say to yourself, well, why would Netflix want to do that? It's about getting the number of subscribers up um, uh, internationally. Although, ironically, I think Netflix, uh, you can't subscribe to Netflix now through the App Store. Uh, with, with Apple, yeah. uh, they've they've pulled they, they that pulled because that. they had to they had to pay a big, a big fee. fee, and they weren't going to, they weren't willing to do that. And they thought you know they took the view that they could they could do it on their own, so they may as well. Yeah. Now Apple does have a lot of uh, net cash uh, in the bank, mm-hmm. as it were. I think it's one hundred and thirty billion. Yeah. There's been a lot of rumours flying around. I think Tim Cook even said that they would run down that uh, cash pile. There's a lot of rumours going around that they might look at a big ticket acquisition, and maybe Netflix uh, could be the target. Yeah, yeah, it could be. Like it's talked all the time. The, the, I think the big issue for a lot of these type of media companies is ultimately, and, and you know, Netflix are realizing it. The cable companies in the US realized it many years ago, and and I think even to a lesser extent, Apple are, are realizing it too. Is no matter you might have the best device to do this, that, and the other, but the reality is, content is king, and you know. Talking to a newspaper person, I'm exactly. I'm sure I agree with you hear. wholeheartedly, <laughs> um, and that's what people want. And you know, a lot of these producers, you know, the likes of Apple's and Netflix, always thought, well, you know what, we were going to have the best route to network, and all the the, um, the content providers will want to come to us. That hasn't been been the case. Netflix has to pay a serious amount of money now. That I think they're spending upwards of about a billion a quarter on on actual content, own made content. Um, and Apple are in a similar situation. I would be surprised, I have to say, if 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 uh, Apple bought Netflix, I would think they would more likely be doing bolt on. Pure content deals that can ultimately uh, come through and and solve that side of the problem. But you're right; they do have about a hundred and probably about a hundred and ten million, uh, hundred ten billion uh, of cash on the balance sheet. Some of that is overseas, so that's always to bear in mind now. Uh, but you know they they can do it, and they pay dividend, and 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 they might return. They do reasonably large share buybacks as well. So there's plenty of ways that they can return it to yeah. to shareholders. Some of that presumably is the money that's held in escrow relating to the thirteen billion they're supposed to. Well, there to is yes, there is the Irish there, there is a little bit of that sitting in an escrow somewhere, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Now, Tim Cook's a smart man and Apple are are quite innovative. So uh, what are you expecting from the company this year to try and turn around their fortunes? I I think the problem that they have is that the the issues they face can't necessarily be turned around. And and it's an issue that's been of the making for quite some time, uh, ever since, you know, Steve Jobs passed away. He was the real visionary. He was the real kind of, um, you know, product innovator. You know, it's almost uh, moved to the situation now. When Tim Cook took over, he's much more of an operations guy, much more of a finance guy, and not, you know, not the creative type. So they do have a problem with with creative side of it, and I think the the that's not going to be solved. And I uh, and when you have you know sixty odd percent of your revenue coming from the iPhone, it becomes a drag. And I think you know from the perspective of of the company, like. Whatever's happened in the last few weeks doesn't make the company a bad company. What it does is that it shows you that the market expectation has gotten way ahead of itself, you know, and, you know, this whole quest to be the first trillion dollar market cap company and all of these type of things. 
just became a nonsense. Ultimately, they're a good business, but they are facing a life cycle, product life cycle challenge that they, you know, it will be a real test to see can they get over it. And, you know, I think it is interesting to think about this idea that, um, you know, we all think that the iPhone is around for so long at this stage. And yet 2007 was the first time that, that it produced. And even the iPod is probably, I think it was 2000 and maybe 2000 and 2000, 2001 or something when the iPod came out. So you'd say to yourself, you know, my God, whoever has an iPod anymore, I can't remember, that must have been like, you know, sometime in the previous century. But it's not that long ago. So I think they, they have shown that they can develop new products. You know, the watch is doing okay for them. Other bits and pieces as the TV, iTunes, software services are all doing bits for them but there probably isn't the silver bullet necessarily at this stage out there to to uh, to, to solve the problem in the next 12 months but you know you, you, what you tend to find with these technology companies is they're all the time looking for it and they may or may not find it you know? and if a client comes to you and says Aidan I'm thinking of buying Apple stock what would you tell them? I, I would I would be more reluctant. I'd say I'd sit in the sidelines and let 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 let's find out what it is. I think the one the one thing about technology right now and the whole technology space is there's so many really great companies out there um, doing lots of very interesting things that you know you don't have to necessarily stick with the the age old ones that 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 are always uh, have been there. So I think I, I think personally I'd be sitting on the sidelines. I I wouldn't be a buyer at this stage. Okay, Aidan Donnelly of Davy Stockbrowers, thank you for joining us. Uh, we're going to take a short break now. When we return, I'll be joined by Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times and by Danny McCoy, Chief Executive of IBEC, who will be talking about the prospects for the Irish economy in 2019. Back in a few moments. Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015. Now, welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. You can subscribe to this podcast for free on iTunes and it's also available on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcast. Now, this week, IBEC produced its latest forecast for the Irish economy. The employers group is predicting GDP growth of 4.1% this year, just below the government's own forecast and well behind the 7% that's expected to be the outturn for last year. IBEC has cited competitiveness issues and Brexit among the drags on the Irish economy and joining me in studio to run through these issues are IBEC CEO Danny McCoy and Cliff Taylor of of the Irish Times. Danny, you're very welcome. Um, just tell us uh, what do you think is going to happen in the Irish economy this year? Well, Happy New Year to start with and I suppose it is a Happy New Year because as we turn the year, there's never been a moment in Irish economic history that we've been at such a high watermark, um, particularly on things like employment levels have never been higher, public finance really strong order, but the, probably the big thing is business has never been investing more. Um, if our numbers come to pass for 2019, we could be looking at investment by firms in building and um, machinery and equipment building and construction of about 75 billion euros. So if you think about that, it's not far short of 1.5 billion a week. So we look at the big BMOTs that are out there, the great companies like Intel and their big announcements that they've made through the years. And 1.5 billion a week is really, you know, off the charts. So it's a really strong time going in there. But as our report says, there are risks and they're rising. Uh, Brexit, Tell us about those risks. Well, Brexit is clearly one we'll talk about, I'm sure. It's very immediate. It's a bit of a known unknown. But the bigger risk is actually a known known. When you've got that scale of investment going on, it has the potential to crowd out lots of things in the economy. 
you know, your regular business was, you know, here for decades, suddenly these BMOTs arrive, they're going to be able to pay higher wages, higher rents, higher everything, pushing up the costs. They can get the productivity, but the indigenous business will struggle to find productivity justified price returns to pay for the additional costs. So we're going to lose competitiveness in the next year to next two years. The question is, do we have something good at the end of that? Because that's inevitable. Will we have the things that we require in terms of public infrastructure like roads, broadband, schools, universities that are ranked high? So, you know, lots of challenges, but luckily we're going into these risks with a great backdrop. Yeah. Is that a Dublin issue, though, in terms of competitiveness or is it across the country? I think it's really across the country. It's an urban phenomenon, though. You know, we are a big country in terms of landmass compared to a in the Republic now nearly 5 million of us on the island, probably still shy of 7 million people on the island of Ireland. So there's a lot of space, but actually we're looking at an urban phenomenon. When you look at the urban cities, I think that pressure is, you know, not just Dublin. Dublin's clearly way ahead, but those phenomenon in terms of trying to get staff, trying to find the appropriate housing stock, commercial stock, that's in every city now. Yeah, with bulging corporation tax revenues coming through last year, over 10 billion, a record by some distance. And you've been sounding some warning uh, bells, if you like, on how we're using this money. Uh, Some of it has been gobbled up by overspends in health and elsewhere. And you've been arguing that it really should be for one-off infrastructure that could boost the productive capacity of the economy. Yeah, and I think, look, I'm not against health spending. If we, you know, deliberately say we want to spend a lot of money on health services, uh, that's not a bad thing, but do it knowingly. What we've been observing the last three to four years is at the end of the year, we get to surprise corporate tax returns, at least surprise to the government, not to the business community, uh, in November. And then you get a supplementary budget comes through and lo and behold, it's health that's taken an extra 700 million or 900 million, whatever you're having yourself, is really you know, an invidious way to run a business where you're allowing the current expenditure just to go up by really large amounts on the back of what could be one-off, a one-off, I don't mean just in one year, but one-off in terms of a half a generation of a step up on the Irish corporate world, because that's at risk as well. We're not certain this corporate tax revenue will stay in the country Mm. forever. Mm. There's a chance we could keep it if we build the model around it. In other words, provide the type of infrastructure, be it in research and development, universities, quality of uh, urban experience for this kind of capital coming into the country. But right now it's vulnerable. And so we're really taking a big risk by allowing it without a narrative to just drift into the health expenditure. Uh, Cliff, what's your view on how the Irish economy is going to perform this year? Yeah, I think I think Danny's right. I mean, we've had an extraordinary bounce back if you look back at the crisis mm. if you said in 2012 or 2013 and I mean credit, credit to Baylor at the end of 13 yeah credit to Danny he, he was ahead of the game in, in forecasting this if, if you said then that uh, we, we were going to be where we are now uh, you know you would have been uh, you, you just wouldn't have been, you would have been laughed at uh, so the levels of growth uh, and and real improvements in people's living standards since then have been have been quite extraordinary and, and I think the increase in employment is probably the the, the best marker to use. It's a good barometer, yeah. But is, is there a sense of a false economy here as well? Because obviously a lot of intellectual property has been shifted to Ireland uh, in recent yeah. years because of these global tax changes that are going on. And that's having an effect uh, on our corporation tax revenues. It's why they've uh, shot up. But there's a sense that this isn't real. It's not going to last. Uh, and, you know, we could be back to this kind of boom-bust scenario that we've had. Yeah, in the past. I think I think one of, the, one of the difficulties in looking at the Irish economy is that 
the main macro figures are so completely messed up. So in other words, IBEC are talking about growth slowing from 7 plus percent last year to 4 point whatever it is this year. But if we try and you know ask what the 7% last year really really amounted to and what it re- you know what it related to in the domestic economy, we'd all agree it was somewhat smaller, maybe it was 5% uh, maybe it was four and a half percent, but it's certainly you know the, the real rate of growth is a, is a good deal lower. And you're right, we have this strange uh, kind of uh, duality or, or whatever you want to call it. The big multinational companies they have massive operations here. Those operations have been growing. They've been investing. They've been employing a lot of people, generating a huge amount of corporate tax revenue. But then added on to that, in the last few years, we've seen this this other this other bit, if you like, the intellectual property relocated to Ireland. And, and that's clearly been one of the things that's pushed the corporate tax revenues up. So, yeah, we, we are vulnerable there. These companies account for a very significant part of our exports, if you look at the pharma sector, for example. Uh, so trying to work out exactly what's going on in the Irish economy is a bit difficult and a bit messy. But nonetheless, if you look at the number of people at work, it's a pretty good, it's a pretty good marker. Uh, and, it's, and it's now at its highest level, its highest level ever. I think... The big issue, obviously, this year is Brexit, and it, it makes it terribly difficult to make any forecasts with any degree of confidence because of the huge difference between the different possible outcomes. So we have everything now as a possible outcome. At, at, at the best end for Ireland, a second referendum when the UK decides to stay in. At, at the worst end, a hard Brexit when the UK crashes out next March uh, in a couple of months' time and you know, trading arrangements change overnight, chaos for a number of sectors here. Who knows what the... It's very difficult to estimate the short-term impact of that yeah. on the economy, but it clearly won't be good. A couple of developments on the Brexit front today, uh, incremental, if you like, in terms of Northern Ireland and the backstop. Uh, just explain that to us. Yeah, there's a couple of things happened. So the debate has started in the uh, in the House of Commons today, or restarted, you might say, given that it was postponed. Uh, and a couple of things have happened. One is that the British government published a special paper on Northern Ireland to try and reassure the DUP. Now the DUP are straight out saying, this isn't enough, it's no good. Uh, but they've given some reassurances there that a reconstituted Stormont Assembly would have some control, would be consulted before the backstop was brought a into operation. A form of veto, essentially. Well, a consultation on the form of oh, before the backstop was brought in, which isn't a veto, but then a veto on any change in the way it would operate in future. So a bit nuanced and clearly the DUP aren't happy because the backstop could still come in and they could be consulted and told, we've listened to you, but it's still happening. Uh, so, you know, not enough for them. So that's, that's the first thing that happened and it doesn't appear to have been enough for the DUP. Perhaps the more significant thing is that an amendment uh, was voted through the House of Commons very narrowly, which uh, obliges Theresa May, if the vote is lost, to come back with another plan. Uh, so in other words, to tell Parliament what she's going to do and present another plan to Parliament. Now, this may... Andy. Plan B. Uh, the difficulty may be she may she may not have a Plan B, and if if, we, if she has, we certainly don't know what it is. Uh, but this seems to make it more difficult for her to run down the clock. Uh, speculation had been that she wanted to leave the vote at the last minute, frighten the House of Commons, get them to back her withdrawal agreement. This makes it more difficult to do that. It also sends a very clear message that, uh, and as I did another vote yesterday, that the House of Commons, the majority, is 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 not for a no deal. But two, two, two problems is, the two problems are there's no consensus or no backing in the House of Commons for, for any other idea. Uh, 
for any actual way to move forward. And secondly, it's not clear or it doesn't seem that the House of Commons in itself could stop a no deal happening. So it still remains the case if nothing is agreed by the end of March, the UK leaves, there's a no deal exit. But nonetheless, a feeling the Parliament's trying to take back control and that this could be really important as the process goes on in the next few weeks. Yeah, OK. Hard to figure out what's going to happen in this uh, whole Brexit debate, Danny, but it's, it's really not going to be good for Ireland, is it, either way? No, look, it was never going to be good. Um, I think, as Cliff says there, the next couple of weeks, we'll see lots of twists and turns. It seems to me there's another acronym that's out there, which is BINO, which is Brexit in name only, is the most likely scenario. Uh, I think Britain will leave. Um and I think they'll stay fully aligned. I think that's the most likely outcome and it's the best of a bad lot at the moment. It'd be great if we could turn the clock back and the first vote was right. I'm not personally too enamoured by the second referendum. I think that could have quite a lot of disruption uh, to British society and to investment decisions and so on, which will have a, a backwash for us. If I could go back Though in in what we're talking about at the start, the investment by firms here in Ireland is that for a business audience to the podcast, if you're looking at that scale of investment, what we're observing today is the putting into the ground of the buildings and the machinery. They'll start generating a return over a number of years. So the likelihood is, you know, those who say that the Irish economy will not continue on are really betting against the fact that these are just sunk costs to be written off. That's not going to happen. We're in a game change situation here in Ireland. And I know you guys go up to the top of the roof and take a look at the cranes and I'm sure your health and safety have you well managed and insured. Don't worry about it, don't worry. Um, But those those cranes is that it's not just, it's not just in the intangible Mm. corporate tax. There is real things happening in Ireland. People can physically see it. They're in queues on motorways or in queues on getting kids into schools and so on. This, this something very fundamental has happened in the Irish economy in the last four years. And uh, I've been watching the Irish economy nearly 30 years. I've never, ever seen anything like this. It may have the symptoms of the Celtic tiger. People can identify... Because of housing and so forth. Yeah. Conspicuous consumption as well and so on. The fundamental difference is this is cash-driven, not credit-driven. And the question is, where did the cash come from? It has to come from something is actually real. There's an awful lot of cash that's in the Irish economy now that's not even got to do with quantitative easing. This is disproportionate to other societies in Europe which are in the same quantitative easing phase with the European Central Bank. Something very different is occurring in Ireland. Is this a good thing? It's neither good nor bad. If we understand it, this could be the making of Ireland and generations to come, including the all-Ireland context, going back to Brexit. You could have a very rich Republic here, would you be able to absorb some of the, you know, threats that the northern community might experience from bad decisions in Westminster, for instance? Uh, but if we don't identify it, we'd allow it to become like a family who win the lottery. You have a great time for a generation, and then future generations will be scratching their heads saying, "How did they blow that possibility to make this family better, this society better forever?" And that's where we're at the moment is, are we, are we too glib to say the GDP numbers don't actually mean anything? I actually think they mean a lot. But Danny, there's something wrong in this country, isn't there? I mean, we've got a, we've got a debt of, what, 200 billion as a, as a state. We've got a housing crisis. I think everybody accepts that. We're building the world's most expensive hospital. And it's not going to be delivered for some years yet. And you know what? We're probably not going to get the world's best hospital uh, for that price tag. 
There's so many pressures and strains in the economy. We've got corporation tax receipts, which might not be real uh, in in the long term. Um, we've also got a, a bunch of multinationals here who are employing a lot of people and bringing a lot of good things to Ireland, no doubt about it. But they've got their own challenges on the international stage. Who knows? Facebook might not be around in five years. Who knows? Apple is going through the horrors at the minute. That's right. Well, our citizens will be around, hopefully. There'll still be people here in Ireland. Um, and that's the great difference between the past is we're a rising population now, which is better educated and in terms of health, better health outcomes and a whole range of living longer, better quality of life. The debt thing is only money, right? The debt position is only money. And the thing that this society is absolutely flush with is money. So the debt is not an issue at all. When you look at the net asset position of Ireland, we're one of the richest countries in the world. We're in the top five countries at the moment. Fine, the but how much are we paying? How much is the state paying to service its debt every year? Very little at this stage relative to the capacity. Is it five, six billion? It's a bit higher than that, actually, but it's not. It's insignificant our, relative to our history, relative to the GDP, relative to the incomes of people. Debt is, debt is the last thing we've got a problem with. But we have lots of problems in society you identify correctly is we don't have real things like houses, enough motorway space. Probably the most critical one is our educational reputation is sinking very fast. And if you're in this knowledge-based world, one of the biggest flags to the world to judge you by where you rank is where our universities are. Having no university in the top 100 is an indictment of a society that has, for tradition, said they, that education was the greatest aspect of what we believe to be the future. You just oh, said we our people are well-educated. Well, they are, but they're, they're, well, they're, brand, they're brand... Oh, well, the branding matters in terms of perception, and we all know that in any kind of uh, brand, perception is the issue. It doesn't mean whether the reality, whether the cola is better than the other. It's perception. People in this intangible world will pay more for services and for brands than they will for the actual physical goods. And that's the real transition in the last 10 years. 10 years ago, the, the Forbes top 10 companies were tangible companies, were General Electric, four of them were oil and gas companies. Today, they don't have any physical assets. Apple, Facebook, Google are clearly companies without any physical assets. They're all intangible, intellectual, property-driven services, R&D, intellectual property. Ireland is now in the vanguard, a frontier economy in that new world. Yeah, sure. Cliff, we've had a strong wind at our back, haven't we, over the past number of years in terms of a, a low interest rate environment, the QE programme from the ECB that Danny mentioned Strong growth in America, uh, good growth in the UK, etc. It's all been going in our favour, but it could turn against us very quickly because of Brexit, Trump's tariff wars. The global economy could go into recession. Who knows? The QE programme is, is over, it's, it's ending, uh, etc. And interest rates can really only go up, can't they? They can. I mean, as Danny said, we've had an extraordinary run over the last uh, the last four or five years. And if if you look at this year, really, I think a lot of it hinges around Brexit. If the Brexit thing is sorted in some way, or as Danny said, it's Brexit in name only, if we can some, somehow avoid this crash-out, no-deal Brexit, I think the Irish economy could probably get away, get through the rest of the risks. Uh, you're right, it's not going to be as good as it has been. Uh, there are signs the American economy is is slowing a bit. A lot of debate about how much figures are still a bit uh, hard to interpret, but definitely slowing. Also signs that uh, the European economy is, is slowing a bit, particularly German manufacturing. A lot of debate around that as well. So yeah, we're we're into a we're into a different a different world. But I think once the outside world is reasonably stable, and once outside markets are reasonably stable, I think growth here can 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 keep going. The one thing, if you're looking for something to worry about, I think 
is the is the, the one immediate risk is 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 Brexit uh, and and this risk that faces us in March. I think if yeah. we get through that, we we could have another decent year for the economy. Um, albeit, as Danny said, facing a lot of the challenges and a lot of the challenges about how we manage to get the money that Danny is talking about to actually improve not only the competitiveness of the economy, but but the living standards of people, you know, to address those things like housing, health, infrastructure. We've had a lot of talk about it. There's been a lot of planning about it, but we're still slow to actually get on and do things. Uh, yeah, sure. That seems to be a real, strikes me as a real challenge for us. Danny Data today from Borbia and Enterprise Ireland. Um, some of it a little bit concerning. I don't know if it's Brexit related or not, but if you take the value of uh, food exports down 4%, the volume was up, but the value was down. And on the Enterprise Ireland side, I think there was a net 18,000, uh, or sorry, there was a gross 18,000 odd jobs created by Enterprise Ireland clients. But there were over 9,000 jobs lost by those uh, clients as well. So the overall picture is still positive, but that's a lot of jobs to lose in one year nonetheless, especially in a booming economy. Yeah, well, I suppose, look, Enterprise Ireland and Board B are very, um, well, well diversified when the companies are big, but the small, uh, medium-sized businesses there are very heavily exposed to the UK. And what we have is both the volume is probably flat to down, given the uncertainty around Brexit. And we also know that sterling in the last 12 months or so has not been really favourable and and lots of decisions have been postponed. So I think there is quite a bit of Brexit effect going on in both of those numbers, way different to the IDA story, which um, which in truth is not a traditional IDA story. The IDA story, I think, is is really got to do with the OECD BEPS work when you're looking at the scale of investment that's coming in. Um, so it's not even a traditional IDA story that's been uh, unfolded. So it's it's difficult to discount that Brexit is clearly having an effect in terms of expectations. People in, you know, it's, it's the easiest thing to say, I won't make a decision till I know for certain, even if nothing got to do with your business. It's an easy one. Nobody gets sacked by saying we're being cautious. Um, you know, it's only when you take a big risk and it doesn't come off. So Brexit is a great excuse, actually, for not doing lots of things at the moment. And um, I think we will see some softness in the Irish economy in those businesses that are exposed to the UK, even the first half of 2019. The overall, and that actually drives our 4% uh, growth story because on the other side, the cascade of foreign direct investment coming as a result of BEPS is still ongoing. We're still seeing that. Some of that might be related to the double Irish because a lot of people believe double Irish is stopped. It isn't. It's tapering off. It's tapering off. But get in before it's over is part of the strategy. And we're still seeing a lot of that reaction. Well, we saw that in some Google accounts um, just a, a few days ago. Just in terms of Brexit, is that an excuse being used by some businesses to keep a lid on wages? Well, if it is, they're not very successful at it because wages are really reflecting what the market is um, is doing out there. There's a hell of a lot of wage inflation um, in the economy right now, which are, is not productivity justified. You know, we're seeing a lot of people having to hold on to staff and try to get new staff at rates that they know is very hard to justify on the productivity that they actually bring to that business. But they're competing against other businesses who can justify those costs because they have the productivity, but it's becoming embedded in the balance sheets they're moving in here. So the phenomenon I talked about earlier on, neither good nor bad, but if you uh, don't face up to the fact that some businesses that are coming to Ireland are crowding out other business communities here. And 
just just one example. There's a real canard at the moment, which sounds like a truism. Well, in fact, it is a truism. It's not necessarily true. It's around construction. Where are we going to find the 80,000 uh, new workers? How, where are they going to live? They're already in Ireland. They're currently in other jobs. They're in the hospitality. They're in the food industry. Because the way markets work, if you pay high wages on a construction site, people will move from what they're currently doing, leaving the beds they're currently in, to, you know, uh, leaving the house they're currently in today. You don't need extra beds. Well, that's unskilled or semi-skilled, presumably labour. I mean, Absolutely. I can't imagine there are too many architects or the pr- chartered surveyors. Uh, They'll come as well. If, if you're paying the money and the money's in the society, you will get that result. The problem for the Irish business community is we know what we need, but in order to get there, you're going to have to suffer along the way. And so some businesses are going to lose out as a result of the construction boom that is already in place and moving up. We're only at 20,000 houses at the moment. We all know we need to double that. Uh, But in order to double that, it's going to have a consequence for your wage costs in any other business that you're in as you try to chase after these houses for your workers. Cliff? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the thing that I've noticed uh, in the last year particularly, I mean, there's clearly been job shortages in areas of, for example, of the tech sector for the last three or four years, we're always hearing about them. Clearly they're getting worse, but the thing that seems to have changed in the last year is this is spread right down through the economy. So you talk to people in the retail sector, the leisure sector, people who employ, whose employees earn the minimum wage or slightly above it, they are now struggling, struggling to hold on to people as well. I don't know if they're going to building sites, to Danny's building sites, or if they're just going have to... you got a hard hat, Cliff? <laughs> And a high vis. I think I, I think I'd look very well in a yellow hat, uh, but I probably wouldn't be very good. But clearly, that the low the lower wage people are being are, are being bid, bid out of jobs. Companies are struggling to hold on to people, uh, and this is you know one of the huge issues facing businesses, not only in the high tech sector, but now right down through the economy. Okay, and just just finally, just very quickly uh, from both of you, uh, Brexit deal or no deal, Cliff? I I. Uh, Deal, but messy. Danny? Deal, I think, as well. Even, even if no deal, there will be a transition period. That's the fear. No deal, no transition period. Cliff edge. There won't be a cliff edge. Even if there's no deal and they're heading to the World Trade Organization rules, we'll do so over an extended period of time. Okay, all right. We'll see how that plays out. We'll know in uh, at least a couple of months anyway. Uh, That's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Aidan Donnelly, Danny McCoy and Cliff Taylor. Jennifer Ryan produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer. You can follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.